Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Key Life Fellowship Men's Bible Study. In this series, Pastor Kirk Hall will be teaching through the book of the Bible known as the Revelation. At this time, open your Bible as the Holy Spirit unveils God's truth to your heart. We will be starting tonight, as your notes say, if you've got a, a blank outline, go ahead and follow along with us on that. But we'll be starting the first part, or part one, of the introduction to Revelation. We're going to take some time getting into this and learning a little bit about it. But tonight we're going to look at a lesson entitled The Great Hope of the Revelation. Now, tonight we're going to begin um, the intro to Revelation. We're going to, at certain times, reference the Revelation. We're not going to start at verse 1 tonight. We'll be doing that in the next few weeks. We're going to ask and then answer some questions Question number one is this, why study the Revelation, right? Isn't it all just going to take care of itself and everything's going to work out and those of us who are in Christ, he's going to ultimately in the end win and we know those truths to be true. There's more to it than that. Uh, but before we look at the answer to the question, why study the Revelation, let's answer four other simple questions that we need to do in, in light of this intro. Um, why should we study the book of Revelation, right? Let's look at these possible answers. One, it's God's inspired, infallible, inerrant word. We're going to look at Revelation because it's God's holy word. We, we can't leave it out. Many people have made that error. They've, they've studied everything in the scriptures, but they have been intimidated by the Revelation. But we know this, that Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and he said, all scripture... All of it, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Why do we study the, the Revelation? Uh, because it's God's Word. The question should be, why would we neglect to study the Revelation? We study the Revelation because it is God's inspired, infallible, and in inerrant Word. The second thing is this, why we study the Revelation. The second answer to our question is this, it's important. It's very important. It's very important for those of us who are believers here today to know how all of this works out. Now, do we, from the Revelation, get every single detail, and can we answer every single question? No, we can't. But can we answer some that we've never been able to answer before after we're through with this? I assure you, you will. So it's important. Why study the Revelation? The answer number three is this. It doesn't have to be intimidating or scary. Right? So many people that I talk to, you ask them, what do you think about the Revelation? Oh, man, it's, it's scary. It's intimidating. I had people, when I announced what we were going to study next, oh, man, oh. The same God who allows us to have insight into every single other portion of Scripture will allow us to see and to have insight into the Revelation that he inspired just the same as he did everything else. It was all God-breathed. Why do we study Revelation? We often say this, isn't it impossible to interpret? <laughs> no, it's not. We study Revelation because it's not impossible to interpret. Is it difficult? There are some difficult areas. I'm going to tell you that right off the bat. There's some difficult things. There's some things that um, we, we, we may not agree on. There are some things we may completely disagree on. 
Those things will all be secondary. Those of you who are in Romans, you, you learned that we're not going to divide over secondary issues, right? We're going to just agree to disagree over the, the non-essential things that we come um, in contact with as we study this wonderful book. But we can approach this just as we approach every other text of Scripture. And we approach it like this. Lord, we don't have any answers. Lord, we don't understand anything. Your kingdom is too vast and your majesty is too amazing. Your word is too perfect. God, we need you to show us what it is that you want us to see. And the same God who allows us to interpret the gospel of John or the gospel of Matthew or the Psalms or the Proverbs, the same God who allows us by the power of his Holy Spirit to interpret those things, the same God who will allow us to interpret and to learn from the revelation as we study it. I tell you all these things so that you don't start out intimidated or afraid or, or fearful or all the things that we have seen in the past in teaching this letter, this book. Uh, many people study it for the wrong reasons, right? Many people study it because they want to have all the answers to all the end-time questions. And then what they don't have, they just fill in the blanks and then make up their own story to go with it, which is never good. But many people don't study it at all. They don't study it all simply because they're overwhelmed, because someone told them that's, it's too symbolic. And I'll tell you this, there's going to be some symbolism in there, and we're going to look at that. Is everything in the Revelation symbolic? No. Everything that is in, symbolic in the Revelation is just like everywhere else in Scripture. You're going to know that it's symbolic when you get there. If you pay attention to the context around it and to other Scripture, it supports it. Many people think, well, it's just this mystical thing. It's not mystical at all. This is going to be real. We're going to interpret it literally, just like we do everything else in the Word of God. So many people shy away from it. I don't want to do that. And I see from the turnout tonight, I guess you guys don't either. What I want to do is I want to dive into this, and I want us to learn and to grow. And I assure you of this, just as I did when we opened the Roman epistle. You study this, you're going to grow. You study this, you're going to fall deeper in love with Christ. You're going to long for him all the more. I assure you of that. But Satan knows this. Satan knows what we're going to talk about tonight, that the revelation brings great hope to those who are in Christ. And I believe that's what he has done for many generations. He has caused us to be afraid to dive into this and to see the hope that this book brings to those who are truly in Christ. I believe Satan has been relatively successful in causing even those who are born again to be afraid to open this book. I encourage you, as we are studying through this, open the Revelation. Read it. You can read it easily. It doesn't take a long time to read it from beginning to end. Read it as many times as you can. Become familiar with it so that when we get to those sections, that you have questions about. Perhaps we can answer your questions. Perhaps we can clear up some things. Satan knows that if he can intimidate us, we miss out on that hope. He also knows the vivid picture uh, that is painted for us in the revelation of the glorious return of Christ, the final judgment for sinners, and the ultimate defeat of Satan and evil once and for all. And that's exciting to even think about that. We get to see all of that 
in the Revelation. So here's what's going to happen as we begin to study this amazing book. What's going to happen is we're going to realize the great hope that we have in Christ. Some of you say, well, I know the hope I have in Christ. You're going to have greater hope in Christ. You're going to see that as this world around us seemingly craters, that's nothing new. This world is a fallen world. It has been cratering since the garden. And the only hope that we have is the hope that we have in Christ. And so we're going to look at that tonight. We're going to see how the revelation gives us hope uh, as our intro tonight. Because I want to take away all of the preconceived ideas and all the preconceived fears and all the preconceived intimidation that might go along with this book. And I want to see, and I want you to see, that this is a book of hope. And so we're going to approach it as a book of hope. Is it prophecy? Yes. Are there some symbolic, symbolic things? Yes. Are there some things that are difficult to interpret? Yes. But we're going to start with hope because it brings us great hope, and it brings us great hope in light of, and if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn here. You can leave here tonight and tell everyone we started our study in Revelation in Genesis chapter 3. And I want us to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 because what we do in error many times is we jump to the end and try to study the end and we don't understand what the purpose of the end is all about and why is all of this so glorious to those of us who are in Christ? Why does this bring great hope? We're going to read Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read it all. It says in verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? We know this, that God commanded Adam not to eat of this particular tree. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it, or you will die. Verse 4 says, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. and He ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They tried to cover themselves by their own resources. It didn't work as we'll see. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord, Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid. Interesting enough, fear had never, ever entered the mind of man until after he had sinned. He says, I was afraid because I was naked. We have fear and we have shame immediately. I was Afraid because I was naked. They had been naked this whole time and were unashamed. He said, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Kind of an interesting rhetorical question that God asked because God already knew the answer to that question. The man said, the woman you put here with me, right? Excuse after excuse, it's her fault. <laughs> the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Is that true? Yes, it is. The serpent deceived her and she ate. 
So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. And you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The first mention of the gospel victory right there. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Properly interpreted, that means your desire will be to control your husband, but he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you that you must not eat of, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life, and it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field, and by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living, and the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. What mercy we see God give them. Even here in Genesis chapter 3, he made a sacrifice and he gave them clothes made from animal skin. And the Lord God said, the man, who, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden. Many people say, well, man, that's, that's bad. He could have eaten of that tree and lived forever. He would have been in misery. See God's mercy here. God wouldn't allow him to live forever in his misery because when sin entered in, so did all the negative things that came with sin. God was merciful even in that. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. I know many people want to know, man, we're starting out in Revelation, we were excited because we're going to find out some things about the end. But we have to go back to the beginning. We have to go back to the beginning so that we can see the importance of the end. How many of you would open any book and begin reading at the end? How many of you would go home and watch a movie and fast forward to the last part of the movie? No one would do that. What is happening in our society we are erasing the fall of man. We're erasing pretty much, as Ken Ham has said, Genesis 1 all the way to Genesis 11. That's why we're so confused about sexuality. That's why we're so confused about biblical marriage. That's why we're so confused about six-day creation. That's why we're so confused about so many things. We're confused about these things. We're confused about sin. Man doesn't see himself as a sinner. Why? Because we don't go back to the beginning and see that we all are sinners and we are all in need of hope and true hope comes from God. And we see this, that that true hope is revealed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're going to see the fulfillment of that when we get into studying the revelation. But I want us, like I've already said, to go into this with great hope. Why? Because we need hope. And we need hope because of Genesis chapter 3. If Genesis chapter 3 was the end, 
we would be in big trouble. But we must acknowledge and we must embrace the fact that in Genesis chapter 3, man fell to sin. And when Adam fell, I fell. And you fell. And from that point forward, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Now, when we get to the end of the revelation and we see those who dwell with God forever, knowing that none of us deserved it, we go back to the garden and say, but wait, we, we, we fell and we're all sinners. We fall on our face and we praise the Lord Jesus Christ for what He has done, for the hope that He gives us. So the revelation brings hope, and that's what we're going to cover tonight. It brings hope. You've got your notes, write it down. Hope regarding man's rebellion. Hope for the fact that we are sinful in our condition. Man fell to sin in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for, for gaining wisdom, and she took some and ate it. She was lured away by her emotions, her feelings. And she took it and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband. Her husband should have at that point said, no, woman, I will not eat of this fruit because God who created me told me not to. However, that is not what happened. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and it says, and he ate it. And he ate it. In the Garden of Eden, perfect, unadulterated fellowship with God, his creator, living in perfect paradise, told, don't do one thing. You can do anything else, don't do this one particular thing. Everybody wants to talk about free will all the time, but don't we have free will? No, Adam did. And you see what he did with it. He willed to sin. He chose to sin, and after that, we are all bound to Adam's decision to sin. To some of you, you're saying, I've never heard this before. Because people want to study the Revelation before they study the fall of man, and the Revelation is just a, a story about mystical, symbolic things that really have no relevance, but when we see this, man willfully sinned. When we see what happens in the Revelation when God redeems man who willfully sinned through the precious blood of Jesus Christ once and for all, again, we fall on our face in worship. It's no coincidence that in Revelation, when we get to the places where you have that glimpse into heaven, everyone is on their face around the throne worshiping. Why? Because they found hope in Christ, and that was the only hope that they could find. Man has been since Adam in a fallen state. Man fell to sin. Man was subjected in falling to sin, to pain, and to death. Genesis chapter 3, as we read that in verse 17, it said to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life, and it will produce thorns and thistles for you, 
and you will eat the plants of the field, and by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. How many of you were really, really excited about going to work this morning? But you had to, right? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you have rather just hung out in paradise where everything was perfect, there were no negative emotions? No, Adam messed that up for us, and then you, because of your sin nature, keep deciding to do the same thing and follow the same pattern. It said, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Just as God told Adam, if you disobey what I tell you, you're going to die. God is letting him know. Just as you were taken from the dust, you're going to return to the dust. Now, this seems rather gloomy that God is going to do just what he promised, but I don't know about you, but as I read the entirety of Scripture, I'm thankful for the promises of God. God is going to do just as he promised. Genesis chapter 2, he made this promise. Verse 16, you can look it up. It says, and the Lord God commanded the man. This is the original commandment. He commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Because of this, because he did eat of that, he subjected us to pain and to work and to suffering and to death. The curse of sin fell upon all of us. Now, for those of you who think the revelation seems kind of gloomy, Genesis seems kind of gloomy, doesn't it? However, when we get to the revelation, God provides forgiveness in Christ. Revelation chapter 1, in light of Genesis chapter 3, when man rebelled, Genesis chapter 1, verse 4, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come. He's saying this so that we know the same God who was there and in Genesis, in the Genesis account at the fall of man, who brought the curse of sin upon disobedient mankind. He says, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Here in the first chapter of the Revelation, we are seeing that we can be freed from our sin, from the curse of sin, by the blood of Jesus Christ. I told you, Revelation is a book of hope. We were to just read Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of man by itself and not read Revelation 1 and see that in verses 4 through 6, it is Christ and his blood. Verse 6 says this, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest. It is Christ and his blood who makes us a kingdom of priests to serve God, serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. So I want you to see this, that the revelation brings hope regarding man's rebellion. How many of you say, I'm thankful for that? I know what some of you are thinking, man, 1, 4 through 6, that's got a lot of stuff in it. Can you break that down? We will. But I want you to see the hope that it brings. Before we get into all the details, it brings us hope because of the blood of Jesus Christ that has freed us from our sin. It's freed us from the curse of sin. It's freed us from the penalty of sin. It's freed us from the pattern of sin. 
once held us captive, the revelation brings hope regarding man's rebellion. Secondly, the revelation bring hope, brings hope regarding Satan's ruthless attack. Satan's ruthless, ruthless attack. We go back to Genesis chapter 3. We see this. We see what Satan did. Satan subverted God's word. Look how he twisted here. Genesis chapter 3, going back there in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. We know this, this serpent was not an ordinary serpent. This was a serpent that was, in fact, inhabited by Satan himself. And the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? He got her to question the word of God, didn't he? Isn't Satan crafty at doing that? Did, did God really say that? I don't know. Open up the Bible and tell me, did he really say that? Did he really say that when we were in Genesis chapter 3 and we read through it a moment ago, did he really say that a curse came upon all men because we all sinned because Adam was disobedient there in the garden? Yeah, he really says that. Don't question that. Does he really reiterate that over in other texts in the Scripture? Sure he does. But Satan is crafty. What he wants to do is he wants to subvert God's truth. He wants to subvert the word of God. But God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it, or you will die, the woman replied to him. Verse 4, watch this. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. So he starts off and he twists the word of God a little bit, and then he gets to verse 4, and he just completely lies. You will not surely die. Well, aren't we seeing that in our society? We, we began to twist the word of God, and now what we do is we just completely preach untruths from the word of God. Satan has convinced people to preach things that aren't in the Bible or to totally ignore the Bible completely and just act as if it's just another book. It's just folklore. Verse 5 says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's a partial truth, isn't it? They knew good and evil immediately, didn't they? Fear and shame instantly. Satan subverted God's word in a ruthless attack. He attacked the woman Right, society is not going to like me saying this. Culture is not going to like me saying this. He attacked the woman because she was the weaker vessel. That's what the scriptures say. And he attacked her because she's going to go on her emotions and her feelings. And she did. And in attacking her, he attacked all of mankind. He attacked all of mankind in that vicious attack. Genesis chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. She was deceived. We see that. God agrees that she was deceived. That Satan viciously attacked her. He lied to her. He twisted the word of God. And she fell for it. And Satan continues to deceive mankind in a similar manner today, attacking us at every single time. Doesn't he twist the word of God in a ruthless attack? And we see it day in and day out. We have Christians who are now 
no longer believing in the inerrancy, or so-called Christians, let me say that, in the inerrancy, in the infallibility, and the fact that God's Word is completely inspired from cover to cover. He's constantly attacking mankind through subverting the Word of God and through deception. Man fell victim there in the garden. Here's the good news. I told you, Revelation brings hope, right? There's hope. God will defeat Satan. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for that. Because if you have walked with God long enough, you know this, that there is a real enemy. That when Paul says in Ephesians that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and forces of darkness and forces of evil, you know this. You know that to be true. That there is a real enemy. And he's constantly trying to subvert the Word of God. And he's constantly trying to deceive mankind. But when we get to the revelation, we see this, God will defeat Satan. Romans chapter 16, when we were there many months ago, verse 20 said, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. We get to share in the victory as the church purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. We get to share in the victory that Christ brings to those who are in Christ when he ultimately crushes Satan just as Genesis told us that he's going to. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and I will put enmity between your offspring. Some of your translations say your seed, very important word, and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. I told you that is the first mention of the gospel. That is the first prophetic pointing to the gospel. What is that saying? It is saying this, from the seed of a woman, will come someone who though the enemy strikes at his heel, he will crush the enemy's head. The heel, not a fatal blow. We know this. Jesus Christ died on a cross as our substitutionary atonement. He went to the grave. He was there three days. And after the third day, he rose victoriously over death and the grave. Satan tried to strike at him, only to strike his heel. But there will be that day when Christ crushes Satan, that ruthless enemy who attacks us ruthlessly, constantly. There will be a day when Christ defeats him forever. Revelation tells us that. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. The devil who deceived them Remember, we saw he deceived Eve way back in the garden. He's been deceiving us all along, subverting the truth of the Word of God, perverting the gospel, perverting the world. It says the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. What hope we have when we look at the Revelation. Here we are and we read Genesis chapter 3 and we say, man, there, there is an enemy and he is crafty and he is cunning and he tricks us and deceives us and lures us. Isn't that true? But the revelation tells us this. The revelation tells us that one day because of Christ, not only did Christ conquer sin because of our rebellion, he conquered Satan because of his ruthless onslaught and attack against Mankind. The revelation already 
bringing us hope here tonight. Number three, the revelation brings hope regarding sin's reign. Sin's reign. I'm talking about the control of sin over mankind. Sin entered through Adam. We learned this in Romans. You guys remember that. Romans chapter 5. We cover this. Verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that one man that Paul was referring to in Romans chapter 5 was Adam. Everyone after Adam. You don't believe me? Go read the account of his son, Cain, who murdered his brother, Abel. It didn't take long for the sin curse to trickle down to the next generation, did it? Everyone after Adam fell under the curse of sin. Sin and death at the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3 came upon all men. How do I know that? Because Romans 5 verse 12 continues. It says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men. Why? Because all sin. All sin. And sin, the action that comes out of your life, proves that there is a principle that exists in your life called sin the noun. And that principle of sin the noun was handed down to you through the ages from Adam. You were cursed by sin because Adam fell into the curse of sin by disobeying God in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden. Man, since Adam, has been a slave to sin, and a slave to death. And it's not ever going to change until the revelation. Until the revelation, when all the things that Christ has promised us come to fruition. That's why it's exciting and not intimidating to study the book of the Revelation. It's exciting because we see all of those things that have been promised throughout the New Testament. We see those things coming to pass. We have great hope because of that. We have hope for our total depravity. If you don't believe in that doctrine yet, keep studying the Bible. Right? It doesn't take long. You will realize, you can read through First and Second Kings as you trace out the lineages of kings. They, they didn't have to try to sin. They would just fall into idolatry. They would fall into sin without even seemingly trying. Why? Because sin has reigned in the lives of mankind since the fall in the garden. But there is great hope, isn't there? There is great hope. Revelation, we're going to see this. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1 says this, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and to open the scroll? I know, you want to know, what is that all about? We're going to do it. Pay attention. But no one in heaven or, or on earth under the earth, could open the scroll or even look inside it. And I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, 
has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls of incense, which are, are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. Watch this. And with your blood, you purchased men for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. The revelation brings hope regarding the reign of sin. Those of us who were once ruled by sin because we have been rescued and as we saw there in Revelation chapter 5, purchased by the precious blood of the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the lamb who was slain because we have been purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We have hope not that sin will reign over us forever, but that we will reign with Him on this earth. And we're going to talk about that in great detail when we get there. But what hope Revelation brings to us, right? Nothing scary about this at all. I know what you want to know. What are those eyes? What are those wings? (laughs) What is going on here? We'll talk about those things as best we can. What's going on here is we see hope in Christ for the sinner. You see, the revelation brings great hope regarding sin's reign. Next, revelation brings hope regarding creation's refining. Creation's refining. We know that we live in a fallen world. Not Not only did Adam fall to sin, The whole world fell because of sin. Isn't it funny how the lost people are trying to fix the world all the time? How can we fix the hole in the ozone? How can we fix global warming? I'm sorry, climate change. In case you have a cold winter. How can we fix this? How can we fix that? You can't. It's broken. As we just saw in Revelation chapter 5, the only hope is the one who is worthy to open the scroll. But there is hope for the refining of creation in that one. We know all creation was affected by sin. All of it. We know it was affected because in Genesis chapter 1, just a few chapters back from Genesis chapter 3, we see this. Genesis chapter 1, 31, God saw all that he had created, and it was very good. I don't know about you, but I can look around the world right now, and I cannot see much that is very good in this creation. Oh, we can see some glimpses of some things, but it's all hazy, isn't it, because of sin. All creation was affected by sin. What was once very good, sin has destroyed. And I don't know about you, but I'm longing for the day that we get to see things put back in order. We get to see things put back the way God 
created it, when he said, it is very good. It's very good in sin. The willful sin of man messed the whole thing up. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. He said this to Adam, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. God cursed this whole earth because Adam sinned. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life, and it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. All of creation was affected by sin. Genesis chapter 3, we just read it. God cursed the creation that He said was very good, and He cursed it because of the sin of man. And creation is still feeling those effects. In fact, when we were in Romans chapter 8, you remember this, I hope. Verse 19 of chapter 8, it says, The creation waits eagerly in expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Why does the creation wait eagerly? For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. He's talking about the will of Adam, chose to sin in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Adam sinned, God cursed the earth, and the earth is groaning for redemption. Groaning. Oh, when you hear of an earthquake, see it as a groan. When you hear of a tragic storm, it's groaning. Why, those things weren't here prior to the fall of man. Those things weren't here prior to sin. When a tsunami washes half of a country away, pray then for the only hope that you have. Come, Lord Jesus, redeem and refine the earth that sin messed up. Creation is still feeling the effect. This whole world is still in a continual fallen state. That's why I told you the liberals can't fix it. They can't. There's but one who is worthy to refine his creation. And he will. He will refine his creation. How do I know this? Well, from the book that nobody wants to read that's so intimidating, so overwhelming, so mystical, so symbolic, he says plainly in this book that everyone has been afraid of. Watch this, Revelation 21, verse 1. Pardon me if I get excited. Because then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. There will be a new heaven and a new earth that is restored and refined back to God's original paradise where He will dwell with men and men will dwell with God. We're going to see that in the Revelation as we study that. And what hope that brings regarding the fact that creation needs a refining, doesn't it? Right? How many of you can turn on the news and not say, man, this world is a messed up place? 
It is. Why is it messed up? It's Genesis chapter 3. It's not messed up for any other reason. It's not messed up because our parents used to spank our rears. It's not messed up because we raised our children right in this new generation. It's not messed up because of politicians or politics. It's messed up because of sin. In fact, the earth is groaning. When we go back to the beginning, we see this. Sin messed everything up. But there's great hope in Christ for the refining of His creation that was subjected to the fall of man and the curse of sin. So the revelation brings great hope regarding God's creation and the refining of that creation. Lastly, Revelation brings hope regarding God's restoration. God's restoration. Sin destroyed man's perfect fellowship with God. No doubt about it. We can see it. He had a perfect fellowship with God. We can see the effects afterwards. It's an imperfect fellowship with God. Because sin is imperfection. And God cannot tolerate our imperfection. Sin destroyed man's perfect fellowship with God. Genesis chapter 3, back there again, verse 23. So the Lord God banished him, talking about Adam, from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Verse 24 uses a little bit stronger language. It says, God drove man out of the garden. He was alienated from God. Cut off driven out from the garden because he could not fellowship with holy God any longer in an intimate relationship. Why? Because sin cannot dwell with a holy God. The psalmist said this in Psalm chapter 4, you are not a God, chapter 5, excuse me, verse 4, you are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you, the wicked cannot dwell. We know the New Testament teaches us this, that we are alienated from God apart from Jesus Christ. That we cannot intimately commune with God any longer because we are sinners. Sin can't dwell with God because He's holy. And God can't dwell with sinners because they're sinful. However, right? Revelation, we're already learning, it is the book of howevers. It is the book of hope. However, God will restore complete fellowship with those who are redeemed in Christ. He will restore complete fellowship. Let's look at how he does this. <clears throat> Revelation 21, verse 3. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. And he will live with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. Face to face, in his presence. Any of you here ever been into the unadulterated, intimate presence of God? No, you haven't. Oh, he's given you glimpses from time to time of his glory. But it says we will dwell with him, and he with us. 
And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. What is the old order of things? Sin. Sinfulness. That brought death and pain and tears to our eyes and suffering and mourning. He says that old order will pass away. The older I get, the more I long for that. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of water, of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. What a promise. I don't like the revelation. It's scary. Really? To dwell in the presence of God forever through the precious blood of Jesus Christ and what he did for you at the cross and to be his son in a new creation forever? That's scary? That's exciting to me. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, The sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. God will restore fellowship with all those who believe, with all those who have been redeemed in Christ. Those who have not been redeemed in Christ, they will experience the second death where they will, contrary to liberal beliefs these days, they will suffer for all eternity in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. People say, do you really believe, Kirk, in a literal fiery hell? Yes. Did you just read that? That's exactly what the Word of God says. There's nothing there to indicate that that's even symbolic. It's true. It's literal. But for those of us who are in Christ, we have great hope. Why? Because we are not of those who are unbelieving and lost and wicked. We are redeemed in Christ, and those of us who are redeemed with Christ will be rescued by Christ, and we will dwell in the presence of God forever, glorified and perfected in Christ Jesus, not because you deserve any of it. If you learned nothing in Romans, I hope that you learned this. You were justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And for those who are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you will dwell in the kingdom and in the presence of God for all eternity. That's hope in the book of Revelation. That's not intimidation. Something that calls you to fear. It's great hope. Revelation 22, the last chapter, as we have taken the 80,000 foot journey over the Revelation tonight. We'll just wait till we get into it. Revelation 22, verse 3, it says, No longer will there be any curse. Why did we go back to Genesis chapter 3 to start this out? I wanted you to see the curse. And it's upon all men since Adam, all of mankind, and even this earth. But the last chapter of the last book of the Bible says, No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the, and, and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face. What? 
I thought if we see his face, we will surely die. Not anymore. All things have been made new for those who are in Christ. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Man, we'll be called his. His, his name on our foreheads. For all eternity, when the Father sees us, you know what he sees, his name. His name. Why? Because the righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been imputed to us positionally that we learned about all through Romans will be imparted to us eternally. And we will be clothed in white with His name on our foreheads. And there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Revelation brings great hope. And what hope? We see in this great book that God allowed John. We're going to talk a lot about John in the next few weeks. But God allowed John to stay alive so that he could receive this. Not so that we would be afraid of the things of this world. But so that we would be hopeful in Christ who has overcome this world. He brings us great hope. Hope regarding man's rebellion. Hope regarding Satan's ruthless attacks. Hope regarding sin's reign. Hope regarding creation's refining. And hope regarding God's restoration. How exciting is going to be to study the Revelation. Just a glimpse tonight. I hope you get excited. I hope you get fired up to learn. But just a glimpse into this. I guarantee you this, I'll leave here tonight excited with great hope from what we have seen tonight. I pray that you would as well. I would also say this, if you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have no hope at all. My prayer is this, if God would draw you out of darkness and into light to receive His mercy and grace tonight, that you would not leave here without talking to someone about knowing what it means to truly be saved to surrender to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. And Lord, we're excited to learn more about your word because it reveals more about you. Your character, your attributes, your grace, your mercy, your salvation that you have given us in Christ. Lord, excite us, excite our hearts Motivate us through the power of your Holy Spirit to desire to study like we've never studied before. Not so that we can know more, but so that we can know you more intimately. So that we can see the hope that we have in Christ more clearly. Lord, thank you for these men, every single one of them, for the homes that they represent. Lord, I pray that you continue to raise them up to be mighty men of God, to lead their families, to be a leader for you in their workplace to make an impact in their community so that you can receive glory and honor for their lives and so that others will come to know you as they proclaim the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, the only hope that sinners have. Thank you for that hope. Without you, we're nothing. We stand in awe of your sacrifice here today, thanking you again, because without it, we're destined for hell. But because of you, Lord, we can read the end of the book 
And we can know that we have great hope in Christ. We pray these things in your mighty name. Amen. We hope that you have grown through the teaching of God's Word. If you would like to find out more information about Key Life Fellowship, visit our website, keylifefellowship.com, or you can email us at info at keylifefellowship.org. We would love for you to join us in person. Our men's Bible study meets every Thursday night at 7 p.m. here at the Key Life Fellowship campus located in New Caney, Texas. Or feel free to join us at one of our Sunday worship services as well. As we conclude today's lesson, I will leave you with one reminder. Go out and be the light in a lost, dark world.